And as you're being seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's Word? And would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 14? So we've had uh, a bit of a short break from our main series, which has been working verse by verse from beginning to end through the book of Revelation. So we come this morning to Revelation 14. And since we've we've been away for a couple weeks from this series, and since this is a book where it's easy to get lost in the details and the debates of this book, I thought, let me just remind us briefly of the big idea, the big picture of the book of Revelation. So if you're ever putting a puzzle together, you know, if you're going to know how to frame the puzzle and put the puzzle pieces together, you have to keep looking at the picture on the cover of the box of the puzzle, lest you get lost and confused and give up. And so what is the big idea? What's the the big picture of Revelation? The book of Revelation is written to encourage believers to faithfully endure the tribulations and temptations of this life because the lamb who was slain for them is reigning now on his throne and he is returning soon to make all things new. That's the big idea. That's the big picture of Revelation. It's in this book that... John is writing through symbols and rich imagery drawn from the Old Testament to encourage weary, tempted, tried followers of Christ and reminding them that in this world you will face the threat of persecution. You will face the corrupting influence of false teaching. You will face the seductive allurement of worldliness. But take heart because the lamb is on his throne. He holds the keys to death in Hades. He holds the scroll of the history of the world in his hands. And he will return soon and he will put away, he will put an end to all your temptations, all your troubles, all your tears. And so live in light of that day. That's what the book of Revelation, that's the main thing. If that's all you get from this series on Revelation, then I I think you've you've gotten something at least worth uh, taking home with you. And so that's the big picture. And now let's zoom in to Revelation 14 this morning. One of the more sobering sections, one of the probably the most sobering sections in the book of Revelation, if not in all the Bible. Revelation 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, and heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on the harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whenever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of humility and submission, that we would sit underneath your word, that we would receive it with the weightiness of its sweetness and the weightiness of its somberness. Lord, that we would understand it and that we would live in light of it. And Lord, that it would remind us of what Christ has done for us, what he has saved us from. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you as I begin a story of hindsight is 2020. We've used that phrase before. A gentleman named Carl in summer of 1997 had received his first bonus at his corporate job. So he decided to use it to buy his first stock. And so for his initial investment, he bought $1,000 worth of shares in a newly launched online bookstore. But after a couple of weeks, Carl had second thoughts about the long-term viability of online bookstores because he didn't think that they would be able to compete with brick and mortar stores like Barnes and Noble, which had such a large footprint. So he decided to sell his shares and use his bonus money for an overseas vacation instead. Well, fast forward 15, 16 years, and not a day goes by when Carl doesn't think about the fact that his $1,000 worth of shares in Amazon from the summer of 1997 would be worth over $3 million today and many overseas trips. So with his head buried in his hands, he thinks to himself, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have made a very different decision. Now, the reason I bring that up is because it is one of those classic examples of a saying that you have said to yourself and maybe to others on numerous occasions. Hindsight is always 2020. And if I had known then what I know now, I would have made a different decision. If we could have seen the final outcome of that choice or the lack of choice, the final outcome of that action or inaction, are there many things in our life we would say, I would have done that differently? And yet we know on earth there is no tool or trick or person who will be able to help us overcome our hindsight is always 2020 problem. If you've ever driven down US-1, coming out of Tequesta, going toward Jonathan Dickinson, on the right you've probably seen, there's a psychic who lives there. Um, and yet you have to make an appointment to see her, which is I find odd, because I thought she'd know you're, you're coming anyway. But <laughs> it's neither here nor there, okay? <laughs> Hindsight is always 2020. The final outcome of whatever financial, relational, practical decision you make in life is ultimately unknown to you in the the fullness of all the outcomes that could happen. Because as humans, we have a finite and limited perspective on every earthly decision we make. But the book of Revelation provides us something far better and far more significant than knowing all the outcomes of our earthly decision. Revelation gives us an eternal perspective. Revelation takes us back into eternity future, takes us into eternity future, and helps us see 
eternity in hindsight. In Revelation 14, it's as if John is giving us a prophetic preview of the age to come. He helps us see that after the dust of history has settled, after we have reached the number of our days as God has counted them and limited them, he helps us see what will be the outcome of the destiny of those who decide to receive and follow the Lamb and those who reject the Lamb and go their own way. You know, some of the most common repeated phrases in Revelation are easily overlooked. One of the most common is, I looked and behold. So if you look at verse 1 of Revelation 14, and even verse 14, John mentions that phrase. The other most common phrase that's easy to overlook is John repeatedly says, I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And you see that in verse 6 of Revelation 14. They don't maybe seem very significant to us, but they actually reveal part of the function of this book. Part of John's purpose in writing Revelation is to help us see life on this earth with the eyes of faith. John is helping us gain a heavenly and eternal perspective on earthly realities that we would not otherwise see without the eyes of faith. So for example, if you ever watch maybe a military movie, there's usually a scene where a group of soldiers is on a mission and it's at night and it's very dark and they're approaching their target and because it's dark, they, you, know, you can't make out the building or the people and then what do they do? They flip down night vision goggles and all of a sudden the view is sharpened. They can see buildings, they can see people and they can conduct their mission much more safely and swiftly because they can see things that they couldn't see before without those goggles. Well, that's a bit like how the book of Revelation is meant to sharpen our perspective on reality, on life in this world. Without the night vision of Revelation, we might wonder who's really in charge. Is there a purpose to all this? And is, is history really going anywhere? But in Revelation 4 and 5, what do we get? We get to see into the throne room of heaven and we see that at the center of the throne room is the Lamb who is holding the scroll of history in his hand, who's working out all his purposes according to his wisdom for his glory and his Father's glory. Without the spiritual perspective of Revelation, we might be tempted to think that the primary cause of our troubles in this life are maybe political or economic or social in nature. And if we could just correct those things, then we would live happily ever after. But in Revelation 12 and 13, what we saw is that John has shown us that behind and beneath the surface issues of political, economic, social things is a reality that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil at work in this present evil darkness. There is a dragon who is raging against God and his people and his world. Well, now as it relates to our passage of Revelation 14, without the eternal hindsight of Revelation, we might be tempted to think that the church will never survive this battle and evil is always going to thrive in this world. And for John's original audience, the church looked very small and very fragile, and Rome looked very big, very intimidating, very indestructible almost. Maybe for us from a contemporary perspective, the church looks fractured and splintered and divided. It seems like the church barely made it through COVID and the 2020 election. You know, what's going to happen when we have real problems in the church? And in our world, it seems like false, ungodly ideologies and ideas seem to gain so much traction so quickly and have so much support in the wider world that it's hard to see how the truth of God can prevail over deception and lies. But in Revelation 14, John gives us an eternal perspective. He gives us the 2020 hindsight of eternity, not so that we can just have better information about how things are going to work out, 
but so that we would persevere in the present, so that we would press on and endure in following after the Lamb wherever he leads us. So verses 1 to 5, we're going to see, is that John encourages us to persevere in the present, to continue to endure, because the victory of the Lamb is already secured. It's already a fixed reality. So in the previous two chapters, John has been describing the nature of the spiritual battle that the followers of Christ are engaged in. So he talked about the dragon in Revelation 12, the beast in Revelation 13, first part, and the false prophet in the second part of Revelation 13. And it forms kind of this, this unholy trinity that works in tandem to seek to deceive and destroy the people of God and the world at large. And for the believer who is engaged in this battle, it can be a very wearying battle. The constant need to remain watchful against the schemes of the enemy. The barrage of flaming arrows that he shoots at us over and over again with doubt and guilt and shame and accusation. And the unceasing need to constantly discern between lies and truth, foolishness and wisdom makes one weary and run down. And so one might become so weary from this battle that they wonder if the battle's ever going to end. And one might be so weary about thinking if the battle's ever going to end that they start to wonder what the outcome of the battle is actually going to be. And here in verses 1 to 5, John helps the weary soldier who's struggling, whose head is hanging low, to hold on to hope by looking outward and upward to heaven and seeing a foretaste and a foreshadow of the victory of the Lamb. So look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says this, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. So verse one, we see the lamb standing safely and securely with his people in Mount Zion. The 144,000 has already shown up in Revelation seven. So I'm not gonna spend a bunch of time on that. What I said there is that number is a symbolic number covering all the people of God throughout all time and history and space. It's that number 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's the people of God, the Old Testament saints, the New Testament apostles, times 1,000 standing there with the lamb in that heavenly city, Mount Zion. And the reason he mentions Mount Zion is because in the Old Testament, this place became very significant for the people of God. In the days when Assyria and Babylon was coming and attacking and destroying Jerusalem, when their homeland was crumbling, when they were being led out of their homeland, the psalmist and the prophets started to speak of another place that God would build one day. It was called Zion, Mount Zion. It was that place that represented the fact that God was gonna regather his people. That one day, once again, God would do a new work when his people would be in his place enjoying his presence. And Mount Zion came to symbolize and signify all that. It was that future greater city which is to come. And so that's why he mentions the city. He's saying, look towards that city which is to come. And then in verses two and three, we hear the sounds that fill the halls of Zion. Look there with me. Verse two and three. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So what do they hear? These weary, worn out believers, what do they hear in heaven? They hear the song of victory. They hear Zion filled with the singing of celebration and victory. This is an echo of Exodus. Right on the heels of God's deliverance of the people out of Egypt, what is the first thing the people do 
when, they, when the sea is still roaring and foaming after the waves have crashed on their enemies, what do they do? They sing to the Lord. They sing the song of victory. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. God's people sing because the Lord is our victorious warrior who has fought our battles for us and delivered us from our enemies. That's what these weary, worn out believers see. They see and hear the song of victory. You can think of it like this. At, at the end of any you know, college football game, what does the winning team usually do right after they win? They go over to the student section and they join the band in singing the school song, usually. It's not one Florida Gators get to sing often these days, but I hear they have in the past been able to sing those songs. And yet, it's one of those things where it it's marks the fact that your team won, that they were victorious, that they get to sing. And this is a picture of what they're seeing. They're seeing the victorious army is the one celebrating, the one standing in victory. So in getting a foretaste of the sights and sounds of this victory celebration, John is encouraging us to keep fighting the good fight, to keep putting on the armor of the Lord every day, to keep standing strong in the strength that the Lord has supplied because we stand with the one whose victory has already been secured. The battle is won. And one of the reasons I love and cherish corporate worship is because I, I get to see you all and I get to hear you sing and it fills my soul with encouragement like almost nothing else does. It reminds me afresh every week that in this spiritual battle, I'm not alone. That I don't, I don't fight alone. And I know that I stand together with other believers in the Lord and it continually then motivates me each week, each Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, coming into Saturday to keep fighting the good fight. It is a weekly foretaste. Corporate worship is in a sense, a weekly foretaste of the victory celebration of heaven. It reminds us that we stand together with other believers in the lamb who has won the battle for us. Well, next in verses four and five, John describes some characteristics of this victorious army. So at the beginning of verse four, chapter 14, he says this, it is these, the army of the Lord, these followers of him who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Now it seems odd what he's saying there, but I think it is clearly a a metaphor for spiritual purity. So for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul says this about the church. He's, he's speaking to the church and there, the church he's writing to in Corinth is being tempted to go after other gods, after other ideologies and to, to leave their faith in the Lord. And he says this, I feel a divine jealousy for you, dear believers, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And the idea is there is a in this covenant relationship with God, it has marriage overtones, that we have been betrothed to Christ. And what that means is he is first, he is foremost, he takes prime place in our life and nothing is to displace, is to displace him. We are to keep him center and everything else is to revolve around him. And yet the world says, no, you should, you should worship this, you should go this way, you should believe this, you should do this. And what John is saying here is, no, this, this army is marked by purity. They have been purified, they're, they're spotless and unblemished as they stand in heaven next to the lamb. Well, then John goes on to mention other characteristics about them. He says in the second verse four, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. So there's fidelity and faithfulness to the lamb. And then in verse five, he says, in their mouth, no lie was found. Now, why these descriptions? How are they meant to encourage us? Well, on the one hand, these descriptions are meant to encourage us because one day they will be true of us. One day, these descriptions 
will be true of us. And think about this. For a weary, tried, tempted believer who's still struggling against temptation, who knows how many battles he's lost, who knows the sin in his own heart, who knows his own weaknesses, how many times he's fallen short, this gives us assurance that one day our character will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be in practice what we are in position, that what God declares us to be and justify righteous, we will actually be in our character and actions in heaven. One day, every struggle you have against temptation will cease. Every hunger and longing you have for holiness will be satisfied because you will be conformed to the character of Christ. But on the other hand, these descriptions are meant to motivate us toward godliness today, in the present. They're meant to give us a picture of what the Lord delights in, what he values, what the ideal soldier in his army is. Think about this. For them, Rome, with this big army and its soldiers, Rome had an ideal picture of a soldier. And it was all about size and strength and skill. And in our culture today, our culture gives us so many different ideal portraits that are contrary to scripture. It's, it's this physical image or this uh, amount of possessions, the status in society that you have. And yet, what does the Lord delight in? What does he value for followers of him? It's those who have moral purity, who have fidelity and faithfulness to him, and whose lives and character is marked by integrity. And what John is showing us here is the world may not value these things, but draw your values from the kingdom which is not of this world, that kingdom which is to come. That's how John is encouraging these weary and worn out believers to persevere in the present. As we move to verses 6 to 11, John encourages us to persevere in the present because the defeat of Babylon is already settled. The defeat of Babylon is a fixed reality. In verse 8, John reports this angelic announcement, kind of a, an announcement from the future about what is going to happen to this group that they are fighting against. He says, another angel second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So what John has now laid out for us is a tale of two cities. We have Mount Zion on the one hand, and we have Babylon on the other hand. Mount Zion stands as representative for the lamb and his people. Babylon stands for the city of sinful, fallen, rebellious humanity that rejects the lamb and goes their own way. Now, why does he mention Babylon? Well, the reason Babylon is used is because of its Old Testament significance. In the historical memory of the nation of Israel, seared into their memory, is the nation of Babylon because it was for them a very infamous place. It was kind of, you could say, an arch nemesis in many ways because in the book of Jeremiah, for example, around 586 BC, Babylon is the nation that takes the Israelites into exile and it leaves their homeland, the city of Jerusalem, in shambles. It raises the temple to the ground. In the book of Daniel, for example, Babylon is the nation who promotes idolatry, who promotes spiritual compromise, who persecutes the people of God. And Babylon, in the book of Daniel, is led by King Nebuchadnezzar, who represents all monarchs, political leaders, who would exalt themselves in pride, even over God himself. And so here in Revelation, Babylon, with all of that imagery from the Old Testament, is used by John to stand not so much for a physical city, because Babylon did not exist in John's day and it doesn't exist in our day. It stands as a representative symbol for the kingdoms of this fallen world which reject the lamb and live in rebellion against God. 
That's why he uses Babylon. The city of Babylon, as it were, is led by people like Nero and Vespasian and Domitian, emperors of Rome, who use their positions and power to practice and promote immorality and ungodliness and persecute those who do not get who do not follow in their way, like Christians. And the city of Babylon is populated by people who refuse and reject their need of a savior and remain committed to living life their own way rather than God's way. In fact, you could say that in in 2 Timothy 3, Paul warns Timothy about the characteristics that are going to mark people in the days to come. And what he describes could be, in one sense, a description of the residents of Babylon. He says, understand this, Timothy. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, looking externally religious, but denying the reality of its meaning. That is a description of the residents of Babylon. That is the place that stands in opposition to Mount Zion and the people of God. And it's a well-populated and very enticing city because the wine that Babylon offers, as he describes here, seems on offer at first so delicious and it is so intoxicating, at least for a little while. For a time, it feels so good to drink the wine of pursuing your own pleasure, living life how you want to, being accountable to no one but yourself, and living only by the rules that you choose for yourself. feels good for a time. And even for the followers of Christ who have left the city of Babylon, we're all born into the city of Babylon. We have to be born again into Mount Zion. But for the followers of Christ who've been transferred from the city of Babylon to Mount Zion and are journeying there, we can sometimes turn around and think, maybe I should go back. It sure seems more comfortable. It sure looks a little bit more enjoyable there. Maybe it wouldn't hurt just to stop by on occasion to visit, wouldn't it? Well, lest we would ever be enticed and intoxicated by Babylon's offers and appeals and enticements to us, John tells us of the terrible destiny of Babylon and all its residents in verses 9 to 11. So in athletics, if someone's dazed or groggy or unconscious because maybe in a football game they got hit really hard, you'll notice that a trainer will come to them and they'll sometimes administer smelling salts. And it has these chemicals like ammonia in it that's diluted a little bit that as you breathe it in, it's meant to bring about conscious, like help you wake up, think more clearly, breathe better and regain focus. Well, Revelation 14, 9 to 11 is the strong smelling salts of scripture. It is very weighty and somber and serious. It's meant to wake us up to the reality of the enticement that Babylon offers us. So look at verses 9 to 11 with me. And another angel, a third, followed him saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, i.e. as a resident of Babylon, He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the marks of its name. 
These words, these descriptions are incredibly difficult to begin to comprehend, let alone to speak about. Yeah, I, one of my greatest struggles is the fear of man. I, I like being liked, and I don't like thinking that someone doesn't like me. I, I, I struggle with it. And whenever you read a passage like this in the Bible, you can, I should be careful how I say it, you can see how other churches or places like to skip these sections, like to kind of you know pick different spots in the scriptures. And there's even a temptation that rises up into me to say, hey, you should just breeze over this quickly. You should, let, let's just, Let's just pretend we didn't read that. And yet, the thing that makes me want to say what I have to say is because my calling is not to be liked by you. It's to be faithful to the Lord, whether you like that or not. And my calling is because I know there are churches that wouldn't, would not preach on this. They would not say this. They would hide or ignore or compromise what the scripture says. And there are many people who go to those churches, and I do not want to be a church like that. In fact, yesterday... I got a call from a hospice group in the area to go visit a gentleman who is in-home hospice care, who's on the precipice of eternity and has a Presbyterian background. And so they called me. So I went to visit him. And let's just say, I'm I'm not going to go into all the details. Let's just say we come from different Presbyterian denominations. That's all I'll say about that. He'd grown up in the church his whole life. He's 90 years old. He had never heard the gospel in his life. He was an elder, deacon in his church. I asked him what it means to be a Christian. He couldn't answer it. I asked him what the gospel was. He couldn't answer it. I asked him what his favorite Bible verse was. He couldn't think of one. He had never heard the gospel because he went to a church that refused to preach the gospel to him and instead peddled a bunch of, I have to be careful, junk, let's say that, to him. And so I read him John 3 about being born again into the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That we have a world that is so entitled that we think, hey, even if I you know, did my best, you know, God's going to grade in a curve and I'll be fine. That's not how it works. And so these words are given to us because people need to be awakened from their spiritual intoxication because we have been sipping too long on the wine of worldliness and false teaching. And through these descriptions, it's as if John is saying, all who are enticed by Babylon, all who are current residents of Babylon, consider seriously Babylon's eternal destiny. Do not be enticed by the wine of immorality that this world offers to you because in eternity and for eternity, that cup of the wine of immorality will be replaced by the undiluted wine of God's just and holy wrath. It will not be an exchange that you want to make. Dear weary and worn down believer or resident of Babylon, don't give in to the seductions of Babylon's pleasure. It is a fading and false and empty pleasure And all the pleasure that Babylon offers will not compensate for one moment when you're sent to the place where rest is never found and suffering never ceases. All those who are in hell would trade all the pleasures that they took from Babylon just for one moment to diminish one degree of that place. We also need to remember what the early Christians were enduring that John was writing to. The church was facing severe persecution. Babylon was a massive looming threat to them, which was coming down hard on the church. They were losing their livelihood. Their properties were being confiscated. They were being falsely imprisoned. And Emperor Nero had made it popular to make a sport out of killing and martyring Christians. For example, and this is just a sample, Nero would use Christians as human torches to light his garden parties to impress his friends. And he would entertain Roman citizens by feeding Christians to half-starved lions in the Colosseum. 
That's not just the thing of lore. That is the thing of history. And so for these believers who were persecuted, who didn't live in a place of affluence like we do, the great cry for them was, how long, O Lord? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? How can you allow evil to go unpunished? And the answer to that question is, in a sense, from these verse. And the Lord is saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Keep enduring. Evil will not get the last say. Now, many people, I understand, struggle with a biblical portrait of God's justice and wrath and the doctrine of hell. And it seems like, to many, it's, it's like if you were, when you were a kid and your parents ordered supreme pizza, right? You just want a pepperoni, they ordered supreme, and there's black olives and there's green olives. And what do you do? You pick them off, right? And you just eat the ones you want. Many people don't find these doctrines appealing, this, this representation of God appealing, so they view it like that pizza. You can just pick off the toppings you don't like and just eat the ones you do. And we're tempted to do that because we live in an age where our sensibilities and our emotions have become the arbiters of truth, right? What we feel is what must be real. And we have to understand emotions and feelings and sensibilities were designed by God to be servants of the truth. But today they're seeking to be masters of the truth. What is true and what is not is based on what I feel. And so often, instead of submitting our feelings and sensibilities to God, we would have God submit to our feelings and sensibilities. I love this quote. R.C. Sproul said once in one of his teaching series, in the beginning, God created mankind in his own image, and ever since then, mankind has been seeking to return the favor. We've been seeking to remake God in our own image. And so we erase things like justice and wrath and hell and different things like that. But what happens? If we erase the attribute of justice and wrath from God, if we pick that topping off the proverbial pizza, what are we left with? We're left with a God who ignores every cry for justice from every human that has endured injustice. We're left with a God who would be unable to satisfy every human longing for all wrongs to be set right and for the restoration of true peace to come about. We would be left with a God who is morally indifferent toward evil, who looks at it and just shrugs his divine omnipotent shoulders and says, no big deal. That is not a God worth worshiping. And thankfully, that is not the God of the Bible. He is the judge of all the earth, and he will do what is right, and he will set all things right in the end. And no one in the end will be able to look at him and say, that's not fair. But why the delay? Why the delay? Look at verses 6 and 7. Why the delay? Because then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Why the delay? Because God is not slow in keeping his promises, but not desiring that any should perish. He desires that all would come to repentance. God is patient and he is kind and his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That's why the delay. As hard as as it is to fathom, in God's hand, as verse 10 mentions, there is a cup of wrath filled full strength with his anger due to sin. But know this, dear Christian, you need not fear or worry for one moment that God is going to hand that cup to you and make you drink one drop from it. Why is that the case? Because the Father, instead of handing us this cup of wrath, which we deserve to drink from, which is filled full with our 
sin and its judgment, he hands that cup to his son instead. When Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion, looking for that comfort in his last hour before the pain of the cross that he's going to face, what he is greeted by from his father is a cup. It's this cup, filled full to the brim with the judgment that is due our sin. Jesus is the only person in all of history who could look at that cup and say, that's not mine. I don't deserve to drink it. It's yours. You drink it. Jesus, the spotless, sinless one, had not contributed one drop to that cup. He had every right to take it to us and hand it to us and say, here, this is yours. You take it. But instead, he says, Father, if it's your will, I will take this cup and I will drink it for them. If you are in Christ, because the lamb took that cup, the cup of God's wrath, it is empty. There is not one single drop left in it. And instead, if you're in Christ, you are handed a different cup. You are handed the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Christ took our cup and he hands us his cup, the cup of blessing. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is a cup filled and overflowing with God's undeserved grace and kindness toward us in Christ. And from this cup, we get to drink daily. We get to drink eternally and endlessly and be satisfied in the grace that overflows to us in Christ because the lamb was slain for us. And so in light of that, what's our call? Look at verse 12. And 13. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In light of the victory that is already secured in the Lamb, in light of the defeat of Babylon, in light of the fact that we do not have to drink that cup, we're handed a different cup. We are to persevere in the present and press on knowing that our joy will one day be full and overflowing in Christ. So may that encourage you to persevere today. Let's pray.